0: Okay, so I'm just gonna read out the um, my submission with respect to forced adoptions inquiry on behalf of my uh, sister Coco, uh, who is my father's daughter. I've updated a few things, Um, again I'm happy for people to contact me and let me know if they are willing to uh, contribute or suggest edits in any way. And I've had a look over some of the Hague Convention's um, articles as well as just try to gather a broader understanding of what that actually means in terms of what is punishable at the International Criminal Court of Justice, I'm also kind of looking to Chile for an example of um, cases where there is a conflict and children are kidnapped by the state for political and economic reasons. Um, and so that's something I might fill out a little more, but I think it's I think you know it's kind of growing. It's growing and I've had to take time because, again, you know, as pre-noted, I've had cunts harassing me, just doing stupid shit like some garbage brain animals while trying to, you know, gather this together. So it's quite, um, you know, it's, it's challenging. It's always challenging. I don't know if you can hear the talking in the background, but it's like someone way the fuck up the street like making sure that their voice penetrates all through my fucking home um while I try to work so this is just one of the one of the fucking problems I have but it gets worse um anyway let me uh go ahead and read this out i write this with considerable concern as my contribution to the forced adoptions inquiry i am aware generally that submissions from family communities institutions and individuals affected have been requested I have not perhaps provided this inadequate time. Nonetheless, it is critical. Throughout the submission, I will address a number of matters, those more broadly addressed by the inquiry and collective groups, for example, mothers or the stolen generations. But I also wish to provide insight to the country's history of slavery, the latter because it is necessary to provide clarity, particularly for a group who have been previously invisible. There are three three themes there are three themes, as well as a personal narrative I wish to vocalize. The first is institutional abuse, the second institutionalization and the third victimization. The difference between the first and second is this: institutional abuse occurs similarly where power and institution meet and extend beyond the initial institution that caused physical, psychological, and emotional grievances. It exists usually with some criminal element in that it is not at large sanctioned by a group. Institutionalisation is where patterned norms, beliefs, values, and modes of behaviour form a larger constitution. Victimisation may fall between the two or exist in one, depending on where lines are drawn or demarcated as we know laws and institutions legislation legislation and policy shift continuously justice is obviously a factor however so are wealth protection and power moreover victimization relates to the idea that hierarchical constraints in which those most likely to be powerless are the most subjected and least likely to be acknowledged by the state. Here we may apply some concept of socialization of power or social constructs of deserving and entitled recipients of negative or positive awards. These include access to truth, arbitrations of truth, and prioritization or organization of truth. Different to arbitration in that while it may be recognized as truth, It may not be perceived as valuable, as other truths. I think I need to, as as valuable, correct. Okay. Across the literature on institutional abuse, scholars have identified a number of findings, consistent across data. One finding in particular stands out in my mind. In the article, Bad Apples, Bad Barrel, Exploring Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, Death, 2015, the author observes an inquiry to the Christian brotherhood in which a conversation ensues. To paraphrase the essence of what it is in this conversation that holds true, rather than going through the entire dialogue, is the breadth of non-response and collective silence across institutions as indicative of mechanisms of a cover-up. Quite often, this is the case where institutional abuse occurs. Middleton et al. Write that... Sorry, I just seen a typo. Recognising the phenomena of individuals or groups of individuals associated with an institution to further sexual abuse of children or a cover-up is essential to ending abuse... Or at the very least, understanding how such instances remain regrettably repressed. <clears throat> In cases where transgenerational abuses occur, a culture of the misuse of power to endure resistance and persecution of perpetrators highlight a set of societal norms, where legal or other, permit violence against the body of those who are vulnerable and least acknowledged. Indeed, it has only been in the last two decades that large-scale investigations and inquiries have really occurred in many parts of the Western world. Some have led to reparations, lending value to the argument of institutionalisation as a model of violence against those groups who are least able to resist. Organisational analysis suggests that individuals are constantly engaged in calculations of the costs and benefits of different action choices, and that behavior reflects such utility-maximizing calculation. Tolbert and Zucker, nineteen ninety-six. More importantly, social independence of organization and environments. Place individuals as both actors and recipients of actions, whereby overarching paradigms enable or deplete the varying degrees to which maximisation may subsist and yet remain reflective of organisational commitment. Where two or more entities come together to exchange goods or services, a third component of interdependence may serve to enhance or invalidate. Reciprocity is largely concerned in international human rights law with victim-centred approaches. Here, where the precept hollows out the victim's visibility, particularly in the cases of institutionalisation, i.e. a set of social norms, etc., sanctioned, the act of victimisation becomes the predominant institutional interest. For example... In the Rwandan genocide, sexual violence was not initially understood as an act of violence. Women, in spite of countless accounts of sexual violence, specified in context of the act of genocide and directed as a form of domination. So what word is missing there? I'll fill it in. Okay. Reports later instructed that rape be investigated and that impediments were the result of discriminatory attitudes against female victims that did not recognize their their accounts of sexual violence as an act of genocide. In this way, institutions were alleviated. The responsibility of necessary training, financing and overall empowerment of victims as imperative to redressing Structural failure resulting in heinous human rights violations. Human Rights Watch. Human Rights Watch. 1996. The latter account is significant in the life of my family and my sister for whom I write this submission. It is significant because of who she is and the way institutions have resolved to objectify her and her historical personhood. We are the great-grandchildren of an African-American woman who was a black to Australia in circumstances shrouded with uncertainty. What we know of her life here and abroad led insight to the role institutions played, not only in her life, but also the life of her descendants. As situating her historically also situates us in the transatlantic slave trade. What is clear is that She left the United States in the aftermath of the Civil War, which lasted from 1861 to 1865. Her parents were slaves. Whether or not she was auctioned into slavery is yet to be determined. Certainly, her family suffered during the period of Jim Crow. Here, she worked as a wet nurse on Irambi Mission in Kara, New South Wales the Slavery Abolition Acts of 1833 by the British government tell us that she was an illegal slave under Australian law and the Crown in the early settlement period of western New South Wales. Arambi Mission itself was not established until approximately the 1890s. She married in the early 19th century under the Native Protection Act to an Indigenous man who previously had fathered a number of her children, and subsequently had more children, two of whom did not survive according to public birth, death, and marriage records. From those children came the birth of our father. He was immediately removed from his parents at the age of two and throughout his childhood also auctioned, dressed in female clothing, to local white townspeople in the small town of Kempsey. He was further lent out on behalf of the Board of Education and Vocation to a number of white people across the state. He experienced ongoing sexual abuse. In 2015-2016, slash the state government made a settlement agreement with members of Kinchela Boys Home Aboriginal Corporation. Compensation was awarded under the Professional Standards Act, on behalf of past governments, which evidenced not only child sexual assault, but the theft of finances and employment and acts of psychological punishment and cultural torture. Officials on behalf of the Australian government repeatedly told our father that his mother was a whore and his father was the devil. This is recorded in his legal documents, resembling the revered mind-warping and de processes of the US military and the CIA in Canada's 1980 MKUltra lawsuits, a program designated under the auspices of Dr. Ewan Cameron, a once Nazi war criminal. His official records further deny... My father's official records further deny his African-American heritage. The government policy of assimilation into white Australia as devised under the White Australia Policy of 1901 focused on his Indigenous heritage and the eugenics ideals of social Darwinist beliefs of natural selection. These ideas formed part of the racial hygiene policy for forced adoption. According to the Geneva Convention, signed by the Australian government initially in 1949, Article 2 in the present convention, Genocide Means, any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial or religious group. As such, A. Killing members of the group. B. Causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. C. Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part... D. Imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. E. Forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Article 87 under the prosecution of perpetrators of racist acts of the 2001 World Convention Against Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia and Related Intolerance urges state parties to adopt legislation implementing the obligations they have assumed to prosecute and punish persons who have committed or ordered to be committed grave breaches of the Geneva Convention of the 12th of August 1949 and Additional Protocol 1, thereto and of serious violations of the laws and customs of war, in particular in relation to the principle of non-discrimination. According to the Supplementary Convention on the abolished on the Abolition of Slavery, the Slave Trade and Institution and Practices Similar to Slavery in 1956, signed by the Australian Government, parties are required to eliminate all forms of slavery, including bondage debt, serfdom, and any institution or practice whereby a woman without the right to refuse is promised or given in marriage on payment of a consideration in money or in kind, to her parents, guardian, family, or any other person or group. And two, the husband of a woman, his family, or his claim have the right to transfer her to another person perceived for value, received or otherwise. The Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW, 1979, entered into force in 1981, Part 1, Article 3 states, state parties shall take in all fields in particular, in political, social, economic, and cultural fields, all appropriate measures, including legislation, to ensure the full development and advancement of women for the purpose of guaranteeing them the exercise and enjoyment of human rights, and fundamental freedoms on a basis of equality with men. And Article 6 states, state parties shall take all appropriate measures, including legislation to suppress all forms of traffic in women and exploitation of prostitution of women. Part 4, Articles 15 and 29, protect rights to access US inheritance by virtue of our great-grandmother's heritage, and part two, article nine, protect rights to determine one's own nationality. In 2012, the Australian Parliament tabled the report on the Commonwealth contribution to former forced adoption policies and practices disclosing wide-ranged systemic abuses against parents and children forced into adoption from the earliest 20th century up until the 21st century. In 1921, the New South Wales state government issued an official apology. It is based on this apology that submissions have been requested and submitted. At this point, the Hague Convention of 1954 and its later amendments should be observed, particularly in reparations discourse. As the Geneva Convention states, colonialism is in and of itself recognised as relational armed conflict under the Hague Convention, and perhaps Chile will serve later as a point of recognition in terms of reparations, measures taken where children have been subjected to kidnapping by the state for military and economic reasons. We note in international law where human rights are concerned in its annexed Tribute, Article 1, The laws, rights and duties of war apply not only to armies, but also to militia and volunteer corps fulfilling the following conditions. One, to be commanded by a person responsible for its subordinates. Two, to have a fixed distinctive emblem recognisable at a distance. Three, to carry arms openly. And four, to conduct their operations in accordance with the laws and customs of war. In countries where militia or volunteer corps constitute the army in form or form part of it. They are included under the denomination of army. Australia and its states are uniquely positioned to assess and reassess its disposition in the aforenoted. However, more instructively, the Hague Convention protects the cultural heritage of displaced, subjugated and usurped peoples as a result of conflict, And with respect to children, details the number of crimes punishable under the international law at the International Criminal Court of Justice. Therefore, I submit the following resolutions. And so that's the updated version. Y'all can go back to the initial one to check out um, what the resolutions are. And once I've completed this... (coughs) I will uh, provide another update on whatever the amendments or changes are. So just to keep people posted. So I've also detailed the um, Red Cross's copy or website uh, of the Hague uh, Convention of 1954 and added it in the description box and just really thought that the notes um, the notes that I've been reading around uh, Bordeaux uh, play a really important role. So I've added one line, which is, uh, my sister and I sit at the intersect of the constructions of power in a post-colonial world, whereby what Pierre Bordeaux has termed cultural arbitrations conceal underlying power structures. Therefore, I submit the following resolutions.